Here's what you need to know as we continue our story this week. About 70 years after Ahab's reign, in the year 782 BC, a king by the name of Jeroboam II began his reign in the northern kingdom of Israel. Like all of Israel's kings before him, Jeroboam continued the practice of idolatry, leading the people into greater and greater sin. Politically, however, Israel was thriving. Under Jeroboam's rule, her borders expanded, matching the boundaries set during David and Solomon's reign. Israel, it seemed, was on the rise. Meanwhile, the mighty Assyrian Empire, which had been the dominant nation in the Middle East for over a hundred years, seemed to be on the decline. Famine, numerous revolts, and conflicts with other nations were weakening this powerful, brutal empire whose borders had been inching ever closer to Israel. And it was right in the middle of this political upheaval that Yahweh did something unexpected. He called a prophet of Israel to leave his country and go preach in one of Assyria's greatest cities, the city of Nineveh. So today as we continue through our series, we're going to be in the book of Jonah. So if you want to turn there, we're going to be looking at all four chapters. And although we're not going to be reading every verse from every chapter, I do want to cover uh, each of the chapters because it's almost like it unfolds as the, the, the plot and the storyline within this prophet's life. Now, to be a prophet of God is one of the very difficult things to do. And so the prophets have, with a lot of angst and a, a great burden upon their heart, they have expressed this frustration. I know that you and I deeply desire for God to speak to us. God, if you would just make yourself clear, if you would just speak... Now remember that when God does that, he's got some, usually, some pretty profound and amazing things he wants people to do. I don't know if he asked, but when God finally made it very clear to Noah that he was going to be doing something in the world and he wanted Noah to do it, he made it clear, and Noah then spent year and year and year and year and year and year and year after year basically building a boat. You, you have the story of Moses, as I recalled in uh, Exodus chapter 3. And God made it very clear, and there is this burning bush, and I need you to go to Pharaoh because I'm going to set my people free. And each of those were invited into God's plan, and they weren't the only ones. God is constantly in the process of, of doing his work in the world, and then at his discretion, under his prerogative, and by his grace, he extends that to you and to me, to others. But let me share with you some words from a prophet that will come later after the time of Jonah. His name is Jeremiah, and it's not going to appear on the screen, but I want to read to you kind of some of the inner turmoil that existed within this prophet's life. He writes in his book, in Jeremiah chapter 20, he says this about the God's call upon his life and the ministry that he had to do. He says this, O Yahweh, you have deceived me, and I was deceived. For you are stronger than I, you have prevailed. I have become a laughingstock. This is what happens when someone says, God, reveal yourself to me and give me a purpose and give me, God, what I want to do is be used by you. And Jeremiah was one of those people that was used by God and then it ended up with him being a laughingstock all the day. Everyone mocks me. For whenever I speak, I cry out, I shout, violence and destruction because the prophet was preaching against the wickedness of his day. And that's not popular. He says, for the word of the Lord has become for me a reproach and derision all day long. 
And then this is the cry of the prophet. But if I say I will not mention him or speak any more in his name, there is in my heart, as it were, a burning fire shut up in my bones, and I am weary of holding it in, for indeed I cannot. That's what the prophet does when God makes his call upon their lives very, very clear. Now, it's interesting that we see in these examples of Noah and Moses and Jeremiah, God reaching down and calling, inviting, and those men and sometimes women reluctantly hear God's call and respond to God's call and then afterwards go, wow, this is a lot more than I thought. This was more difficult. This was far more challenging than I had ever imagined. But today we get to study someone who does something that is rare in the Bible and that is in the middle of an open invitation to stand up and to preach against some evil and some trouble that is going on in the world, that invitation gets rejected. If you're already in the book of Jonah, look at Jonah chapter 1, and here is how it begins. Now the word of the Lord, there's Yahweh's name. Now Yahweh, the word of the Lord, came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up even before me. Now, when you talk about the evil of Assyria and that capital of that city or the capital of that uh, empire would have been Nineveh. And so here Jonah is called to go to that place and we talk about wickedness and it's good to go. Yeah, there were probably some bad people there. They probably had a casino, you know. That's probably how bad it was. But no, it, it, it goes much deeper than that. If you go back and look at their history, if you look at their kings, if you look at their rulers, if you look at their armies... Well, you know of one of the things that they invented. Now, now the version that you see, the cross here, is actually a Roman uh, adaption to it. The Romans looked at what the Syrians, the Assyrians first developed. Um, it was actually not like this. The Romans decided to add that cross beam across the top to extend the life of their prisoners, of those they were wanting to use as an example to terrify everybody around them. The Assyrians were actually even far more productive, I guess, than the Romans were. And so they were the ones that invented as they would go in and they would take over an area in order to instill fear in the hearts and the lives of them. They would actually take their captors and just upon that one pole, when you sharpen the point of it, they would then take that pole and drive it up the middle of people, usually causing all of their insides to just gush out. And this is what the Assyrians did. So when you say wickedness, I know that you're thinking, whoa, 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 it's church. I know. The place where you get dressed up to come hear stuff like this. The truth about the wickedness of man. And God says, I want you to go and I want you to preach against it because they're evil. As they would continue to expand and exploit, to conquer and not only that, but they were an evil nation that were idolatrous by their nature. In every way, shape, and form, they fell under God's righteous judgment. And God says to Jonah, I want you to go and I want you to speak out against them. And then one of those very important words of the Bible, just three letters, but. So Jonah hears the admonition. Now, I would have thought that this would be a great gig. 
I really would have thought, man, of all the places that you want to be a prophet, if you think back, you know what Jeremiah is complaining against? Jeremiah is complaining about being in Judah where God's people are, and I just hate to be the one to tell God's people bad news. I hate to be the one to say, you're always getting it wrong, and you're getting it wrong, and I just, you're always wrong, and you're always wrong, and you're always wrong. Like, it's just, it's wearing me thin. But I'd, I'd love to go tell the Assyrians. You don't think Jeremiah would have loved to go tell the Assyrians or the Babylonians? Man, I'd, I'd like that one. If I get to pick some people to kind of expose their problem, man, take me out of my hometown, send me to Nineveh. Now, I know what you're thinking. Well, but it'd be a dangerous thing. Yeah, but prophets are used to dangerous things. Even when the prophets cry out, as, Jer- as, as Jonah will in this case, as Jeremiah did and many others, Elijah, God, take me. I just can't take this anymore. What Elijah cried out last week for God to end his life was, I feel like my whole life, my whole ministry is just never going to amount to anything. And if Jezebel is the one that kills me, oh, I'd rather God just take me now. Like being in a dangerous place, as we're going to see even in Jonah's life, Jonah's not afraid of the Ninevites. This will unfold. He's not, I don't want to go there because I hear they're terrible people and they're not nice. No. Jonah's got another reason why he doesn't want to go. So God says, I want you to go to Nineveh. And so, by the way, if you're looking at the, is, the map of Israel, that would be due east. You don't need to get on a boat. You just begin to start a long journey up and around, usually kind of this desert area between the Tigris and the Euphrates, and you end up at Nineveh. Well, no, look at this. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish, due west of where Jonah was, and far, far, far away west from Nineveh. Flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa, which is on the coast, and he found a ship going to Tarshish. There's no ships that went to Nineveh. And so he paid the fare, and he went down into it to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord, because if there's one thing we know, you can always run from God. No, you can't. You know that. Like, you can't run from him. You can't run from his plan. There's no ship that you could get into. There's no west opposite of east. No, God's plan has been set in action. God has invited Jonah to be a part of it, and Jonah is rejected. Now, you know the story. If you have your minds, or if you have your eyes, close your eyes for a second, and just imagine back when you were a kid, and there you are, and it's Sunday school. I don't know, you're like six or seven years old, and there's the teacher, and they're telling you the story of Jonah. I don't know if you remember the first time of Jonah, and there you are, and you can see, there it is. It's a flannel graph. Remember the flannel graph? This wonderful 3, not even 3D, technically I guess it's 3D, but this wonderful artistic piece, and you have these pictures, and they got a little bit of felt on the bottom, and there he is, there's Jonah, and he is there, and there's Israel, there it is, and then all of a sudden there's and got this boat, and then he gets on the boat, and you put Jonah in, on, the, on this wonderful thing in the boat, and then you go out into the Mediterranean Sea, and then there's a storm that comes. And the storm comes. Now, one of the problems with flannel graphs is it makes us think, really, is this really a true story? A lot of people have debated, debated this. I actually believe it is. I believe the story of Jonah is not a fable. I don't think it's, a, it's kind of some metaphorical picture. No, I think like the stories in the Bible. There are, there are, by the way, there are allegories in the Bible, and there are parables in the Bible, and then there's history in the Bible. And this doesn't seem to be told as though, hey, let's think of a really cool story that's motivational. No, this doesn't seem like one of those at all. No, it's a very really, play, a really terrible place called Nineveh. 
And this prophet named Jonah gets on this real boat and he sails out into the real Mediterranean Sea and there's a real storm. And back in those days, one of the ways that they could determine why storms were taking place was they would do something called casting lots. For our modern minds, think about drawing straws. And so they cast lots and they find out who is the one that is causing the storm because they believed every bad thing had a reason and they find out it's Jonah. God divinely points to him. And they say, hey, why are you here, by the way? And he says, well, I'm actually a prophet of Yahweh God. Uh, He made the world. He made the universe. And I'm running from a responsibility that he gave to me. And if you want to save yourselves, then I recommend you throw me overboard. You'd think they would go, great, let's do it. But they began to think, if you are truly a prophet of, of, of Yahweh God, and he is the one that made the universe, and he is the one that made the great sea, and he is the one that made the great storm, we are not throwing you into it. And he said, no, you really need to throw me into it, or else it's not going to go well for everybody. And so they throw him overboard. And then the story gets interesting. As you probably know, think back to the flannelgraph, this great fish comes, and it swallows him up. Now, I'll be honest with you. I'm one of those guys. I'm a modern type of a person. I kind of grew up in the 80s where science reigned supreme and nobody knew to question anything. And I began, I always have. I've always wondered, even this past week when I was studying this text. Anybody else wonder, how did that happen? How does a fish swallow a dude and that kill the dude? How does that happen? Anybody else? Okay, got two of you. None of them, by the way, no one in first service, but second service, we've got some people like me. And so we wrestle with this, which by the way, I just have to say, I, I stop and I go, wait a second, Jim, do you believe that God made the universe? Well, sure, how else do you explain where it came to be? Okay, so God made the universe, like literally, spoke stars and universes, solar system, hells everything in this incredible balance, and yet you can't, oh yeah, you're right, okay, that makes sense. So I'm not here to fully explain everything, but let's be honest, if God can make the universe, Getting the dude in the fish and living through it really is something I'm sure the creator of the universe can do, correct? Don't know how it happens. Sure, call it a miracle, but Jonah is in the fish. And then we get this amazing encounter in chapter 2 where in this belly of this fish, Jonah comes to a realization. It's a very interesting prayer. Chapter 2 is basically a prayer where he comes to this understanding that Maybe I shouldn't be running from God. God truly is sovereign. He truly is great. He truly is is worthy of my devotion and my dedication. And he comes to this realization and he makes a very bold and powerful statement that never made it to my flannel graph. Maybe it made it to yours, but it didn't make it to mine. But I think it's one of the key verses in the book of Jonah. And in chapter 2, verse 8, Jonah comes to this profound realization. He says this, those who pay, now I don't know who he's speaking about. He might be talking about the people of Israel, who are definitely going to be hearing about this story. He might be speaking of the Ninevites. He might actually be speaking about you prophetically. I don't know. But here is the statement that he makes. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. That's an interesting verse. In the middle of this prayer, he comes to this deep understanding that those people who choose to trust in vain idols, who choose to trust in things other than the living God, They forsake, if you're reading from an NIV translation, I think it'll say forfeit. They forfeit the grace that could be theirs. The word that is used here at the end of the text is the steadfast love. That's a very um, rich Hebrew term. You've probably heard me say it before. It is the great Hebrew term chesed, meaning God's covenantal love. It's It's not just I love you, it's like I covenantally love you. Like I'm bound to you. 
And so he says, I guess speaking of maybe the Ninevites, but maybe his own people, that those who decide, I'm going to trust in idols, I'm going to trust in other gods to rescue me and to provide for me, to protect me, I am going to choose this instead of the real God, instead of the one true God, that what they do is they forsake, they forfeit any kind of love that God could give them. Question, is that true? People who choose to reject God and decide to trust in something else, do they really forsake? Do they really forfeit the chesed, the covenantal, steadfast, abiding love of God? By the way, I think it's true. I think his statement in that fish is both a challenge to his own people when they read this years later, and maybe to the Ninevites, that to trust in a vain idol just leaves you open for God's judgment. It leaves you vulnerable to God's wrath. And so there is Jonah, the great prophet, recognizing a deep and profound truth. But I would say this, as true as that statement is, it's just not the whole story. I know there it is, it's a period at the end of that sentence. Maybe it should be um, a comma or like a, just a dash. Because it doesn't seem to be the end of the story, even for Israel. Or even for Jonah. So at the end of chapter 2, the fish throws Jonah up, out onto the dry land. And he finds himself, hey look at this, right where I began. And instead of trying to find another boat to flee the presence of Yahweh God, he heads east. And he travels to Nineveh. Now notice how it begins in chapter 3 verse 1. And then the word of Yahweh came to Jonah. I love this. A second time came to him a second time. Love second times. I love it when all of a sudden God recognizes what I did with the first time and gives me a second time. Now, by the way, I would caution you, the Bible warns against always counting on second times. His name was Daniel. I think about him a lot. I've probably talked about him a lot here over the years. He's a young man that means more than just his life to me. It kind of symbolizes even my own journey of faith. I was preaching a revival in the city of Little Rock, and during that time, I was uh, spending one particular weekend with this family. Mom and dad were deeply involved in the church. Dad was an elder. I, I'm no, I'd known them for years. Daniel was their son who was a senior in high school, and Daniel was getting ready to just enjoy life. You know, like, let's not take life too seriously. He was going to become, that fall, a freshman at the University of Illinois, really was an intelligent young man, wanted to study engineering, and just had this bright future. And so he didn't really come to the revival hardly at all, but I, he was going to come to church on Sunday. And so that night, that late Saturday night, me and him got into this like debate, this discussion about God and the reality of God and is there a God, and it just went on and on and on and on and on. So finally I realized, wow, it's 4 o'clock in the morning and i got to get up to preach a couple of times in a few moments. And I looked at my watch and said, Daniel, listen, this really has been great. I'm going to definitely pray for you. I hope I've given you some stuff to think about. I hope you know that I care about the decision that you make. As he's kind of walking back to his room, I'm walking back to my room, um, Daniel makes a comment. He says, well, you know, it's like my mom always said, as long as I, you know, I'm a good boy and try to pursue what's right, I'll always end up where God ultimately wants me to be. And I know she meant well. I'm not even saying that God wouldn't always be there for Daniel in some way. I don't know how that works. But the Bible warns against presuming upon second time options. 
The Bible actually says, if today you hear God's voice, do not harden your heart. So as Daniel was walking away, I had to correct the foolish but well-intended prophetic words of his mother. So he tells me that if he just, you know, just kind of does his thing and tries to be good, whatever that means, according to him, that everything will work out fine with God. And I had to say it before he closed the door to his room. Or not. I don't know if you're going to die as a freshman at some frat party. I'm not saying that you really be careful because it's a long drive to Illinois and God could get you. No, most likely, if the insurance companies are right, he'll die at about 73.4. He'll probably have a very productive life, and as a chemical engineer, probably make a lot of money. He may occasionally attend church. But I, I wanted to warn Daniel that if you build into your life a habit of going, no, I don't want to do anything, no, I don't want to follow God, no, I don't want to do anything, then I'm not saying you're about to die. I'm saying you may never find, you may never find God. Don't presume second times. Now, God has, has given me first times and second times and third times and fourth times. Probably you too, right? I think every time we need to be grateful. I think we need to be thankful. I think we need to be humbled. But to just presume upon God's grace, the Bible warns against that, by the way. That even though God's grace is uncontrollable and untamable and reckless and just flowing everywhere, to presume upon it is a dangerous thing. And the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against that the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of Yahweh. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city. Three days' journey in breadth, and Jonah began to go to the city, going a day's journey, and he called out, Yet forty days, and Nineveh will be overthrown. By the way, that seems to be the fullness of his message. God sees your wickedness. God knows of your hostility. God knows of the injustice. God knows of you not trusting him, the true God, and you follow other gods. And in forty days, the city will be overthrown. And are you ready for this? This is kind of an amazing verse. And the people of Nineveh believed. When Jeremiah gets laughed at, Isaiah gets laughed at, Elijah gets laughed at, Elisha gets laughed at, Hosea gets laughed at. In, in, in God's people's town, Jonah preaches, God of the universe will destroy this place in 40 days. And the Ninevites believed. And they called for a fast and they put on sackcloth, which was a sign of their contrition. From the greatest them to the least. Then the king speaks up in verses 8 and 9. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. And I love this statement. Talk about great confidence. Who knows? Now, now if there ever was biblical confidence, now that's just a biblical cry for help. I can't argue with God. I can't outreason him. My God, I don't think this is a fair deal. Like, hey, God, I think you owe me this. Hey, God, I don't like that. I love, I love listening to people sit in judgment on God. Like somehow they, they could actually like mount a case against him. What court would you even take him to, by the way? There's great wisdom in that statement. We are going to repent. Because I don't think that whole new, I don't think that who knows is, eh, whatever. I think it's a cry for help. It's a sign of humility. Who knows? God may turn and relent. And turn from his fierce anger so that we will not perish. Like, let's just trust this guy because if not, 
Like, we are in serious trouble. Now, by the way, many of us read, like, the whole gospel plan of salvation into Jonah's message. It's not there. I have no idea if all of Nineveh became Christians and then set up churches, right? We don't know that. The message was rather simple. This place will perish. Repent of your wicked ways. And they did. They stopped their wickedness. They repented of their wickedness. And Jonah 3.10 says, And when God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil ways, not just they looked really sad for 20 minutes, when they had turned from their wicked ways, God relented the disaster that he had said that he would do to them, and he did not do it. Now you might go, well, wait a second, I thought God promised. This is the beauty of understanding how prophecy works. The the prophets came with the heart of God as their guide and as their intent. And the prophets would come and say, don't you remember God's covenant promise? Don't you remember God's love? Don't you remember God's plan? Don't you remember the day that you were married and you swore until death do you part? Don't you remember those days? Don't you remember how much he cares for you? Now listen, if you do not turn, if you do not let go of your wickedness, if you do not let go of your idolatry, God will judge you. But if you repent, God's mercy and God's God's grace, God's favor will shine upon you. They're not just predicting future events. Remember, the role of the prophet is to remind the people of God's covenantal love, his chesed. And that chesed, that remembering of that, that love that God has and that, that, that the heart of God who is gracious, and that changes us. The Bible says that it is his kindness that leads us to repentance. That's why, as I've thought through, how much do I need to just kind of hellfire and brimstone this church into being a more godly church? I'm not afraid to do it. But as I look at what the Bible says, hellfire and brimstone is there, by the way. (laughs) Can't deny it. But at the centerpiece is God's love through Jesus Christ. And I invite you to share that. And God's plan is that through the preaching of the warning that we would be changed. And that when, when when, when when that happens, God's favor then lands upon us. This isn't not working. Actually, Jonah is probably the most successful prophet in the Old Testament. If you gauge success on repentance. Which, by the way, be careful doing that because we've got some great prophets coming up that don't have quite the success rate of Jonah. So God's invitation is rejected. Jonah realizes what's going on. God's invitation is finally accepted. And now, as the story concludes, man, this has just got to be the greatest thing ever, right? Jonah's going to be like, God, I just want to thank you for honoring the word that I declared. (laughs) No, look at chapter 4, verse 1. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly... (laughs) Um, we need some adverbs to explore, some adject- or yeah, adverbs to explain how upset he was. It displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. Why? Because I, ugh. Because he was surprised. Because God, I can't believe you did this. I had no idea this was going to happen. No, take a look again. This didn't probably make it to the flannel graph. And he prayed to Yahweh, and he said, "Oh Yahweh." Is this not what I said to you was in my, when I was in my country? 
did I not tell you this was going to happen? This is kind of one of those weird I told you so's. Did I not say this was going to happen? Look at what he continues. That is why. You know why Jonah did not want to go? Because he knew that if he went and he preached this message and they believed, God would forgive him. Look at it. That is why I made this haste flee. Or haste, I made haste to flee to Tarshish. For I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. I knew this about you. There's an interesting statement. For I knew. I don't know what you know about God. But this, un, this, this very reluctant prophet, here's what he knew about God. Can I go through the list again? You know what I know about you, God? How? Because I've seen how you've acted. I've only known how you've acted through history. And by, by the way, if you do more than just kind of fly through the Bible, because you know almost every time you turn the page, you're probably flying through 120 years of history. Like I know it just looks like that every moment people are dying in a flood or getting killed in some kind of a disaster. But you do know that there are hundreds of years of violence and oppression. There's, there's thousands of years of idolatry and God patiently waits. You do know that your judgment of God and his um, fly off the handle, come out of nowhere anger is a really poor description if you read the Bible properly. Jonah read the Bible. Jonah knew God's story and here's how he describes him. Are you ready? Gracious, merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love relenting. Give me your list of five things about God. Go. Can I tell you mine now? Gracious, <laughs> merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, relenting. So what you and I walk away with is this amazing story, this, this, this profound story of God Explaining to Jonah exactly what he's going to do and saying, yeah, you knew. You, you totally knew. Like, like, why are you upset with me? Why are you arguing with me? Why are you doubting me? Why are you judging me? It's interesting. Jonah knew God, and because he knew God, didn't trust him. Now, I have no idea who you're wrestling with right now in your mind. There might be a part of the world that you just can't believe God would ever extend his grace to. I don't know. If I had to take a guess, this audience maybe somewhere in the Middle East. Maybe one of the reasons why we wrestle with different people and places and these kinds of things is because we know for a fact that God's favor goes exactly where it wants to go to people that we don't want it to go to. And it just, oh, it just burns us. Maybe bring it close to home. Maybe it's those people that you know that have hurt you, that have wronged you. And the reason why you don't share the full story of God's love, the full picture of these five things about God, what if they believed? What if my ex started coming to church? I don't know, maybe the one that you're wrestling with the most is you. And I've heard someone say way too many times, I just can't get over what I've done. I can't get, I just cannot believe that God would ever forgive me in light of what I've done. 
I don't know if you're afraid. Maybe God will call you to go to that place you don't want his favor to land upon. I don't know if you can stomach the fact that although you blame God for a lot of things and think he's not very nice or kind, he's far more nice and far more kind. Let's use Bible words. Abounding in steadfast love. He'll ever be. The best of us will ever be. Just reflect on God's uncontrollable, untamable, reckless compassion. So God responds back in verse 11 of Jonah chapter 4, like he even really needs to give an, explain, or give an explanation for himself. He says this, should I not, in the ESV, should not I pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left? Like in fact that you know who I am, should I not pity them? Should I not show them compassion? Should I not show them mercy? Jonah, in light of the fact that you will go back to your people and they will continually ignore my pleas, ignore my love, and I have shown my love to no one as great as them, and they just keep throwing it back in my face, are you telling me when and where and how I can extend my grace and my mercy? There's the great lesson of the book of Jonah. That God is utterly reckless with his grace. Reminds me of a story found in Luke chapter 15. Do you know this one? It's the story of a young man that decided to run away from his father and get his um, inheritance on the way out. You heard this one? So there's this prodigal and he leaves and he wakes up far from home and it's an absolute mess. He's blown all of his money. He wakes up and he goes, hey, my dad loves me. My, my dad will treat me better than I'm being treated here. And he gets up and he goes home. And one of my concerns, and maybe this is where Jonah comes from, is that maybe this is your struggle, is you just sound a lot like the older brother. The older brother, I can't believe you did this. After he comes home, you're going to throw him a party? Look at all that I've done for you. Look, at all, look how great I am. And after this bum comes home, you're going to throw him a party? And I love what the father does, because the father is God. And Jesus is the one telling the story. And he sounds, it sounds like Jonah 4.11. This is what God says through the voice of Jesus in the role of the Father. It was fitting. Should I not pity my son who came home? It was fitting to celebrate and to be glad. For this your brother was dead and now is alive. He was lost and now was found. One of the great biblical themes of the Bible is that self-righteous people who are good in every way but being obedient to God and being humble before him, but in every other way are very righteous. They always stand on the outside looking in. Well, let me, let me put it in Jesus' terms. Matthew chapter 21, verse 32, he speaks of self-righteous people and he says this. For John, meaning the Baptist, he came to you, you righteous people. He explained to you the way of righteousness and you didn't believe him. But now, take a look. Tax collectors and even prostitutes believe them, and they're getting into the kingdom. And it, it just irks you to no end. That's just who God is, isn't it? 
Is your God like that? <laughs> your God. Don't you think God's like that? One of my favorite scriptures is found in the book of Revelation. It's one of my favorite books. Let me read this to you. Because the book of Revelation describes um, a, a present future event. John sees in heaven, he sees this great multitude of people. And let's look at this description. I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from every tribe, and all people and languages standing before the throne and before the Lamb. They're clothed in white robes, which means they're wearing something that was given to them that has made them pure. That's Jesus, by the way. Palm branches in their hands and they're crying out with a loud voice. And I love what they say. Not, and aren't we awesome? Isn't it great that we found the way of salvation? What does it say? Salvation belongs to our God. Who's, who's, who, who, who owns salvation? God does. Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And he gives it to whomever he chooses. And what you and I have the privilege of doing by reading the story of Jonah, the reluctant prophet, and he's not reluctant because he doesn't know about God. He is reluctant because he knows so much about God and it just contradicts what he cares about most. And I look at this story of Jonah and the Revelation. And what I realize is that same invitation goes out today to you. Salvation belongs to our God. He extends it to you. This isn't, whatever the name is that on your driver's license, it extends it to that person. And you're not worthy. And you didn't deserve it. And you have forsaken and you have forfeited. Let's be honest. Jonah 2.8 is right. You have forsaken. I have forfeited the steadfast love that God has offered me. But the consistent, persistent love of God speaks to Jim Johnson a second time. And I pray you hear his voice today. Let's pray. God, thank you for your kindness to us, for your mercy and for your love. May it be the guide. May it be the, um, the reason that we find hope. That, Father, it would make appropriate sense for us to fear you and to be afraid of fire and damnation. Just, that never did it for me. But when I think of your love and what Jesus Christ has accomplished, I understand the statement that your kindness leads to repentance. Father, I pray you would make me more like almost anyone than Jonah. I'm grateful he spoke the truth, but more than that, I'm grateful that by the gospel of Jesus Christ, I come into a deeper understanding of your uncontrollable compassion. It's in his name I give you thanks. Amen. A couple of final things before you get up and run away. One of them is, as Drew mentioned in his prayer, um, that Amy York is here and she is going to be up front. Um, she is with One World Health and we've got trips coming up in 2018, both to Nicaragua and Uganda. And you're going to be somewhere over here. And so if you're interested in connecting with that, that would be great. 
Please do not forget to fill out that form. If not, we'll just be calling each of you individually this week and seeing if you'll help this weekend with Help Build Hope. Because as my dad told you, many hands make light work. And would love to celebrate that with you. Also, in the lobby, and you know we've been talking about Israel, but there is actually a professor um, who is part of this church body who is going to be going as well. And so you may be interested in going over to Israel around the same time that we are. It's a little bit of a different trip. um, And actually, possibly for college credit. So Mr. DeVise will be in the lobby, and he would love to meet with you as well. We love you guys. Go in God's grace, and we will see you Wednesday night.